Welcome to the podcast series of the UNESCO Chair in Refugee Integration through Languages and the Arts. We bring you sounds to engage with you and invite you to think with us. So welcome everybody. Um, you can probably just hear from the humor in my voice that I'm back online with our friends and colleagues, David Gramling from University of British Columbia, Charles Forsdick from the University of Liverpool, and Tawana Sitole from our UNESCO RILA team here at the University of Glasgow. My name's Alison Phipps, and I'm hosting this second conversation with David, Charles, and Tawana, focusing on David's book, The Invention of Multilingualism, published by Cambridge University Press. So episode 23 of our UNESCO RILA podcast was our first episode focusing on David's book. And the conversation was just so rich and deep that we just couldn't let it stand there. We all realized we were really getting into some important areas that we wanted to discuss in a bit more depth. So first of all, David, hello to you. Just wondering, um, what time is it with you right now? Let me see. It is 8.03 in the morning here in uh, Vancouver, British Columbia. And I it's dark. Yeah, it's still pretty dark. That's it's true. It's still pretty dark, yeah. And uh, it's 4.03 here in Glasgow, and I'm looking out over the Campsie Fells, and um, it's dark here too. So we're hoping that we will be able to maybe bring a little bit of light in the darkness. I was actually thinking as I listened over our first conversation, the words of the poet Bertolt Brecht were in my mind, where he says, you know, in dark times, will there be singing? Yes, there will be singing about dark times. And whilst I can't actually promise you that David's going to actually break into song during this, I can't promise you that Tawana or Charles won't. But I do this time maybe want to start with Tawana. We started with Charles in our last conversation and come to you, Tawana. Last time we were talking with David, you were talking about Kukwenya, about rising from sleep and this you know, slightly uncomfortable read. And you were also talking about the role of the Gandanga in the forest and the role of style in particular. And I know that there are many elements in this book with David that you've really latched onto and thought through from your own tradition and wonder if you might want to pick up again on some of those themes and where you'd like to take those. Thanks, Alison. Uh, hello, everyone. Hello, David, in particular. Yeah, it's, it's great to be back. It's amazing how quickly the last conversation went. In a twist, Alison, can I sort of dodge your question and return to it? <laughs> I love the storytelling in this and the, the care of language, the caretaking of language. And it's sort of something that is quite present in my own uh, training, if I can call it that. I just happened to, while I was preparing for today, David, I went onto the NHS website, the National Health Service, <laughs> because, you know, we were, we were thinking about today, you know, looking at this very interesting chapter. Charles brought this up last time, the, the hospicing of language. And um, so, yeah, that idea of giving that, that metaphor of, of hospicing and uh, 
I found these questions that I would like to hear your response to them, David, if you don't mind. <laughs> the first question was, when does end of life care begin? It's quite an interesting question in, in, the, in terms of illness. You're looking at someone has been uh, diagnosed with an illness that has no cure. This is one of the conditions. And uh, so when does this care begin? And then this is followed up by, you know, who does that care? You know, of course, in the, in the case of illness, it is the healthcare professionals plus also anyone who is close to the one who is in this condition. So, yeah, I, I wonder if you can uh, use those initial two questions, David, to respond. Wow. I had no idea we were going to be going in the direction of, of palliative care, which um, is actually, you know, my brother and I wrote a book about palliative care in 2019 called Palliative Care Conversations. And it was about end of life conversations between family members, between physicians and nurses and community members and spiritual guides and people with serious illness. And so and my brother's name, by the way, is Bob Gramling. You know, so I went through this big project around that which was running parallel, of course, to working on monolingualism and multilingualism. And, and at the same time, I bumped into this concept by, uh, from uh, Vanessa Andriotti and, and her colleagues at UBC in Vancouver of hospicing. And I thought it was just so brilliant. And so I started to apply it to monolingualism. You know, how do you hospice a system in decline, something that has overstayed its welcome, something that is throwing tantrums and and being messy and demanding attention and, and grieving and negotiating and, and falling into despair, you know, and then rising back up in brand new forms. This is what I see monolingualism doing. And so hospicing seemed to be the best possible word. Also assessing that word asidere, of sitting next to something and, and attending to it. So how do we sit by a system in decline like monolingualism and not necessarily capitulate to it, but also not so aggressively dismantle it, which I think is one of the gestures that is most frequently kind of used. But when does end of life begin, for me, is a question that, you know, I, I really explored with my brother in that 2019 book. And it occurs before birth, it occurs, the end of life occurs generations prior to one's own life. And the memory of all manner of other kinds of passing are attendant in every birth. And the readiness for transition, for death, for illness is we're millennia into this knowledge. And so I, I, you know, I believe that at birth and in earliest childhood, that's where the beginning of planning for end of life begins. Who does that work? Everyone who is willing to acknowledge that life ends or transitions is doing that work. So, I mean, one of the things that my brother and I realized in that book is that hospitals are institutions that are so hell-bent on being curative that they are deeply, deeply resistant to acknowledging serious illness. They want to get rid of it. It falls to palliative care to be the bunch of people who recognize that serious illness is not removable. And that a lot of the kind of curative gestures that hospitals get into to cure it actually exacerbate suffering, exacerbate pain, and exacerbate denial or and indifference. And so if you've got an institution that is so invested in curing and extending life, 
it will not notice the experience of that life in its suffering. And I think in some ways that really applies to monolingualism too, that there are industries since the 1980s or since the 1940s or, or even before, I suppose, that are so dedicated to preserving and upholding monolingualism that they're not going to even take a, a look at the suffering that that causes for people. And so it's a by any means necessary kind of affair uh, is keeping monolingualism alive. And unfortunately, that word care Caring for languages has usually been applied, overwhelmingly been applied for caring for monolingualism. So caring for the German language or the, um, I don't know, the French language. And so that energy and that momentum and that passion is oftentimes been dedicated towards upholding a purist entity called German or French. And that same level of care has not been historically applied to beautiful multilingual repertoires that are themselves just as vivid, just as precise, just as uh, as necessary as any monolingual one was. And so I, I you know, I want to think with your second question, who are the people who are helping to do that work respectfully and with dignity in late monolingualism? So who, who are the people who are recognizing that the system is in decline and are pitching in not so much to go in and, and muscularly dismantle the system, but to see the pain that it's in, to see the, the struggle, the resistance, the hypocrisy, the contradictions, and attend to them as gently as possible. Thanks, David. And uh, Alison, I promised you that I was answering your question because David brought it up. It's the spiritual aspects of the care, knowing that as you say, David, monolingualism is not being left unattended to. I love this. It still needs to be attended to or tended because the spiritual aspect of that is it is not dying. That is going, it's coming out of its existence. It's just moving into a different existence, maybe where we can look at its, its memory or the impact that it has done in its life, so to speak. So, yeah, thanks so much, David, for that. And just pulling down a structure is dangerous work. I mean, people get hurt pulling down structures. Just think of decolonization from the 30s, 40s onwards, the, the institutional decolonization that people like Franz Fanon talk about, the utter violence of that very process. Whenever I hear an academic <laughs> like myself say something about dismantling or pulling down monolingualism, I'm like, my first response is to duck, you know, what's going to fall on our head, you know, something's going to fall on our head if we just pull this thing down. And, and I've been taught by some really wonderful people, I could Suresh Kanagaraj is one who said, monolingualism is actually pretty important for a lot of people right now, as in, it's one of the ways that people have sought out to protect themselves from incursions from former imperial powers, indigenous monolingualism can be a really, really important tactic and strategy for preservation. And so if someone like myself goes around talking about pulling down monolingualism, well, am I looking hard enough to see whom that affects in a variety of different contexts? So, Yeah, it, we also, we use the word kusesekedza is to, there's a sense of something is on a wave and it's going on a wave. Uh, this is the, the kind of the palliative care. But then even the burial is called kuchengeta, to keep. You know, even though the body is now, you know, the spirit has left the body, but the, we, we speak of the 
the body as kuchengeta to keep that is uh, is coming through you saying you know we need to keep that because we need to look at, at that and and learn what we we had to learn from it yeah mm. thanks tawana i'm going to hand straight over to charles because i know he's been thinking really hard with these ideas and the the range of questions that they bring up that are quite uncomfortable for us to talk about in arts and humanities that come more out of theological studies and that come out of grief and loss, um, end of life studies, questions of ritual and mourning that are brought up by questions of hospicing and the palliative that you were mentioning to honor. So Charles, do you want to pick up some of these threads? Thank you, Alison. And I, I'm very much enjoying listening to David and to Werner in conversation there, because when we last met, we didn't really get a chance to move on to this remarkable, challenging fourth chapter, the final chapter in the book on hospicing late monolingualism. When I read that chapter, it opened up the territories that, that you've just been talking about relating to language and death. And I started reflecting firstly on something you've just alluded to there, Alison, which are those debates around linguicide. And the, often the purposeful eradication of languages, part of broader processes of epistemicide, even genocide. So on the one hand, I had that in mind, that deliberate destruction of language, which I think links in exactly to what David just mentioned, the importance of monolingual opacity and the way in which counterintuitively and slightly perversely in relation to David's argument, monolingualism can be a source of resistance. And we just have to look to Edouard Glissant's work, um, Martinique and think Edouard Glissant's work on opacity and relation to, to think through those issues. But at the same time, it's not just active linguicide. There's also that, that sense of language death being part of the everyday evolution of language. And, and again, David, um, while I was reading you, I was thinking of the, the work of the British travel writer, nature writer, Robert McFarlane, on what he calls the, the transformations of word hordes. Basically, the, the way in which, looking at British culture, we've seen an evacuation from the dictionary of a whole host of words around the natural world. Now, in some ways, that's inevitable because the dictionary can't be exhaustive and words need to be removed to make place uh, for others. But his argument is precisely that that evacuation of words and, the, by extension, the loss of their their usage means that our relationship to the world around us changes radically. So talking about hospicing, for me, tapped into those much wider issues that I think we live in, in our day-to-day -day language use about the ebb and flow, the, the um, decline and fall of the languages we use. But clearly, your focus here is much more on the dynamics between um, multilingualism and monolingualism. And this idea of hospicing has a sort of teleological imperative to it. There's this idea, and you give us a date, David, just after my 70th birthday, 2040 will be the decline of the monolingual. And the hospicing is part of that process. Now, what fascinates me, David, I suppose this is my first question to you here, is that sense of teleology. Because going back to your previous book on the invention of monolingualism, and I think we said this last time, monolingualism has this remarkable capacity driven by ideological forces to reinvent itself. And so what um, may be seen as a process of hospicing on one hand could, in other contexts, be seen as a process of recovery. And I'm, as somebody who works on French literature, I'm 
very aware in France of the organizational structures which do not hospice monolingualism, they fortify monolingualism. The Académie Française being the best example. The Académie Française, a remarkable organization which has this ability to, to recuperate linguistic difference and to recruit translingual writers, writers who've migrated to French and to place them at the heart of the French, a monolingual French literary establishment. And I think about the digital as well. You know, the, the, There are a whole number of digital developments now, which mean that for better or for worse, for majority or for minority languages, languages can be preserved in ways that we could not previously have imagined. So actually, we're at a stage where, as with biological species, we don't necessarily have to imagine languages becoming extinct because they can have these digital afterlives. So I suppose, and I want to come back to the pedagogical structures which permit perpetuation of monolingualism. Maybe, Alison, we can talk about that later. My first question, David, is around that sort of dynamic of decline and uh, recovery and reinvention. And the sense that if, if in a populist context, when there are clear links between languages and ideology, if there's not a possibility that actually monolingualism will thrive. Mm. I think it will. I think, I think there's, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of a number of things now as to Tawana's idea of keeping the body. I think monolingualism is going to thrive from now until 2040, if not a little bit beyond. I get that time period from Donna Haraway, the feminist theorist uh, who talks about the period between 1980 and 2060 as the dithering, which I think is a fascinating concept, the dithering. So this period where the evidence was ample, that profound paradigm transformations on every level of human life were necessary and that we dithered. And I think that monolingualism is one of those arenas in which that evidence is ever present. And so if we have, I was thinking when you were talking about recovery, Charles, I was also thinking about maybe vampirism, almost the giving an artificial life to something that had died. I think that, you know, in the mid 20th century, there was a, you know, we can talk about Europe occupied by national socialism, we could talk about decolonization, all sorts of prompts that in some ways brought an end to the 18th century vision of monolingualism. And then these reinvigorations that happened in the 1960s, 70s, and then profoundly through technology in the 80s and 90s, you know, giving this thing an artificial new life prosthetically almost, so that the system of monolingualism um, has a shot at not only an afterlife or, or a, a second life, but an even more powerful and dominant one. And I think if I look around at the industries that are pouring money into that fortification that you describe, I think they have a really, really great shot at doing this successfully. And so when I, I see my professional organizations in applied linguistics or, or modern languages not acknowledging that profound interest convergence throughout a range of industries, statescraft, governance structures that are, are reinvesting in monolingualism precisely because they know it's dead. That is the prospects for a so-called recovery are 
are very high. And I think that the outcomes and the impacts of that are going to be disastrous. So if we, and, and you pointed to this with McFarland's idea of word hordes, I, I begin the book with talking about forest fires and the terminology that's available for talking about forest fires and how they're a climate emergency driven new phenomena that require new technical terminology. And most of that technical terminology is formulated in Latinate English. And then the question is, where are the word hordes that would would help us um, multilingually come to grips with what the natural world is doing and experiencing right now? But the predominating interest is rather, you know, this kind of interagency Anglo-centric problem-solving mode that relies on a very narrow set of technical terms to address a set of phenomena that are so far out of human control that the setup is almost laughable. And we need all those word hordes to be able to even begin to acknowledge what what we're facing, but we're losing them. And I think one other aspect of, or, or we have lost them, as you point out, these word hordes have uh, disappeared from dictionaries, they've disappeared from public discourse. And so one aspect of hospicing that I think is so fascinating, you know, the work of hospicing in a healthcare setting, and this is, I suppose, slightly different from palliative care, is that hospice brings one into a, a wholly new vocabulary about intimacy with the body, about body processes, about feelings, about sensations, about experiences. And so the very vocabulary of hospice work is different and quiet and precise and modest in a very, very different way than all other kinds of healthcare providing. I suppose nursing and hospice have a lot of crossover. And so in some ways, when we think about hospicing late monolingualism, I think about uh, indigenous decolonial scholars like Eve Tuck, who, you know, talks about rematriating our relationship with language and some of that quiet, modest, but also precise vocabulary about talking about systems in decline that would, would help us to get closer to the experience of it. So we need more word hordes. That's what it is. We need some of those word hordes back. We need to take care of them. And oftentimes the problem with word hordes is their opacity from language to language, as in they're not easily translatable. And so acknowledging that if we are to invest deeply in repertoires in languages that are not easily translated from one language to the next, then we're picturing a whole different notion of what a planet full of languages is and what we should be expecting from that exchange and that infrastructure between languages. That's really exciting to me. And that's that's inevitably coming, I believe, in the mid-21st century. It's just, what is the path going to look like of getting there? Um, how violent is it going to be? How devastating? How much joy will there be? How much, What kind of relationality will, will characterize it in Glissant's sense? You know that, and and yes, that's going to be the rest of my career. I'll get to have one of the front row seats. Many of us will. Thank you, David. The risk of being parochial, but I think this is a good example of what you're describing. We've got in England at the moment debates around the reforms of GCSE languages. Now, GCSE is the qualification school pupils take at the age of sixteen, and um, the reforms being proposed are around pupils learning lists of vocabulary really abstract lists of vocabulary 
removed from any social or cultural context. And this, not surprisingly, has has met resistance on the part of teachers. And and I think back to my, my own experience of learning languages. And it was very much along those lines. It was, um, so this week you will learn the names of 40 trees in, in French. And uh, they were abstracted. They weren't part of any of the sort of philosophical understanding we have about the relationality of vocabulary to the world. And, and it took, for me, it took actually going to France and going to Brittany and learning, being exposed to another language, a Celtic language, Breton, which, which allowed me to think through that relationship of the vocabulary I was acquiring as a language learner with the organic environment in which, in which I was dwelling. But David, if I could take you back to a comment you made, and it was about language acquisition and the, the role of language acquisition and particularly language teachers in the, the hospicing of late monolingualism. In that chapter, chapter four, there are a couple of sentences that really struck me because in many ways, this is a book engaging, it's clearly a cross-disciplinary book, but it's engaging in particular with debates in applied linguistics. But for me, it's essential reading for anybody in modern languages as well. And David, you and I are both in modern languages departments. You indeed run a modern languages department. And so in practical terms, you're having to reflect on a day-to-day basis, pedagogically and procedurally and in policy terms, what the content of your book means. And so if I look on page 182, there's this fantastic sentence here where you say, precisely in those moments when learners are vulnerable and eager enough to unlearn monolingualism, they're often socialized back into it by pedagogical, curricular, and institutional habits of mind. And just over the page, um, you carry on. And this is where I feel very targeted when you said, um, this often a relation of fealty, francophilia in my case, often leads instructors to socialize monolingual bias, even if the same instructor would intuitively oppose monolingualism in the abstract. Now, I, I found that deeply challenging, as I found most of the book deeply challenging, because it led me to think, well, so modern languages departments in the contemporary academy are rhetorically the site of celebration of multilingualism, as you say, of denunciation of monolingualism. But perversely and counterintuitively, and I think I agree with you here, that those same departments, those same instructors in them are complicit in the the fortification and perpetuation of monolingualism in the ways you described. So it's as if by critiquing one form of monolingualism, usually Anglocentric, we're replacing it with another. And I'd just be interested, David, to hear your reflections on that. Am I sort of accurately reflecting your thinking there? And if so, how do you handle that as somebody who is supposed to be leading a modern languages unit? Oh, oh my gosh, Charles, boy, yes, we are. uh, I'll be teaching German 100 next spring here at University of British Columbia. So I, as a department head, I kind of get my pick of what I teach, which is still baffling to me. And I could, I could have picked a graduate seminar on multilingualism with, you know, seven students in it or something. I'm doing German 100. And it's going to have 25 or 30 students in it. It's going to have an online workbook. It's going to have something, uh, a big, chunky textbook that is expensive and all these online interfaces and self-correcting quizzes. And I'm going to be coordinated by one of my colleagues, Angelika Stroch, who is the German program coordinator. Um, And so I'm going to show up and I'm going to do as I'm told. And I'm going to work as part of the team and I'm going to teach German. 
at the same time, and I love that you mentioned GCSC and, and, and the kind of the specter of parochialism, because I mean, wow, everything we do has to be filtered through its kind of institutional specificities and practices. And if I'm going off on some theoretical deal about languages in a book that I can't figure out how to square that with what I do on my in my daily life, well, boy, I wouldn't be able to live with that. I wouldn't be able to handle that. When, so when you talk about handling things, I can definitely handle the really vivid and acute contradiction of going in and teaching German 100 to a very, very diverse student body here in Vancouver and teaching it as a kind of monolingual artifact in some ways. And of course, we're going we're gonna to do variation, sociolinguistic variation and translanguaging and code mixing and poetics and creativity and all those great things. But you can't deny that the course is called German. And so there's no hiding from the named language, countable language kind of specter. So of course, the idea of socializing monolingual bias I get from Uju Anya, who gave a wonderful talk that was called the Takedo Hot Seat. And it was about how it usually in the, in the US anyway, Spanish and Portuguese departments tend to be one. So you have the Department of Spanish and Portuguese and the Portuguese program is tiny and the Spanish program is vast. And so as soon as you have students coming into your Portuguese class and they, they use a Spanish word in class, Uju Anya was talking about how those students are put on the Takedo Hot Seat. So they're kind of punished in a joking way for using Spanish words in a Portuguese class. And so in a kind of a Foucauldian mode, we have this disciplining students to, to behave monolingually and to make sure to be enlisted as kind of vigilant agents on the borders between languages. You know, I know that I'm going to be doing some of that in my own German class, you know, between German and English, German and Dutch, German and Turkish, etc. And Knowing that that I'm always implicated in some of those maneuvers is really, really important. The first book that really turned me on to this idea was Claire Crumsh and Li Hua Zhang's The Multilingual Instructor, which was, I think, 2018. And it was, why is it that we multilinguals hide our multilingualism when we go about teaching languages? I mean, I know that my French teacher in sixth grade knew Spanish, why did she not talk about it? Why did we never talk about it in class? Why was there an official focus of attention that needed to exclude all of these other kind of translingual, transnational phenomena? What did we think we were doing for students by hiding those other aspects of our, of our multilingualism? And so after teaching a semester of German, I'll know better exactly how I handle these things. What I can't handle is the hypocrisy or the the piety of, of the impression that I'm not involved in the reproduction of monolingualism at my institution elsewhere. I'm gonna be battling against it and I'm, I'm never going to pursue a policy or program or an assessment rationale or a rubric that reinforces monolingualism, but I have a German program and a Danish program and a Polish program and a Russian program in my department and Figuring out exactly how to transform that in the next 10, 20 years in a way that is going to be, you know, useful for students and the public. Wow, that's, I'm going to need several years to figure out how to do that. And, you know, talking with, with all of you is the best way to get there. 
David, I'm really struck by a parallel that's just come to me in what you've just said. In 2014, I, I supervised a wonderful thesis um, from a student of mine called Pauline Patrick, which was called Into the Light. And it was about modeling art education as an educator in art classrooms. And she came to me with the pain of being a trained artist, a wonderful artist making stained glass and of never being allowed as an art, as an art teacher to show her own art in the classroom. And she joined a small group of people who wanted to start to practice their art with their students. And you know, this then obviously has led on for me and for my team to a, a whole range of art practice and multilingual practice of saying we're not going to be ashamed of this any longer or hide it or think it doesn't belong in the classroom. And I, again, I'm really struck by there's something here for me about bodies about hiding the embodied practice, the embodied practice of you know, other languages than those sanctioned in this particular classroom by this particular set of state actors, or hiding this particular set of art practices that don't quite fit with what the sanctioned art is that we believe that a distinctive group of pupils should know about art traditions. I'm really struck, and I'm gonna to come to Tawana to really explore and tease this out a bit more, but really struck by the fact that we, we place and have placed and the SDGs, SDG 16, the Sustainable Development Goals, place a, a strong focus on institutions of the state and intergovernment institutions on building peace and sustaining institutions like courts, like governments, like libraries, but also the institutions that support language, like, you know, big dictionary projects and thesauruses that are the kind of repository, the, the place where the hordes, the language hordes that Charles was raising might eventually be found. And I, I'm really struck at the moment by the fact that some of us are under conditions of late monolingualism, particularly in countries that have strong state infrastructures or have enjoyed the outsourcing of individual responsibility to the state in many regards and that other contexts are, are, are failed states or states that have not had the wherewithal to put anything into institutions of the state that the idea of a you know a rep theater is you know it's there for the old colonials but it's really not for an indigenous population of a country who've had much wider performance practices of their own but not supported by the state so i'm just I really think there's something really interesting there. And I just wonder whether this might be a time to bring you into Warner to talk a little about, you know, how you have experienced the dying of languages, as some might call it, or the killing of languages, as others might call it, or the neglect of language care of indigenous languages within your own context by the state, by colonial masters, but also then by individuals themselves. And what that might actually teach us at this point in late monolingualism about this work of hospicing, which is really, you know, teasing at us right now. Thanks. It's great just listening to how this conversation is, uh, is developing. So many things firing through my mind. I should start by saying that I've been thinking about the Mchairo, our sweeping brush. Uh, and thinking of this late monolingualism as the the kind of the strands of the entire we wait for the for a certain type of grass to die basically and then we take those strips and we turn them into a broom that we sweep our homes with so there's something about what you say david about preparing for that clearing and cleaning out 
that uh, happens from something which is in its afterlife, more or less. So <laughs> I'm thinking about, you know, my own experience of learning languages uh, in a country that is 16 languages that are spoken and really being in these kind of particular kitchens. I went to the epilogue, David. <laughs> so, the, you know, you've got the whole house, but of course, the, when you're cooking, you know, because you talk about the practices and the phenomena and the kind of the tools in the kitchen, but of course, when you're cooking, the smell doesn't stay in the kitchen alone. That smell, it kind of permeates the whole house wherever you're sitting. So there's something almost inevitable about you know, that outcome. But yeah, I, I definitely, we were kind of stuck, whatever part of the country you were in, that was the language that you were exposed to in the formal education sense. So there's something to be said about that. And the the other unlikely places where the language exchanges happen for, for my, so where the state is not necessarily doing a great job, you go to the marketplace and depending on who you're buying from at the market, you know, you need to have a bit of developer, you need to have a bit of vendor, you know, to have that conversation with people in the marketplace. So there's something about these set-up kitchens, but this drifting of the scent out of those. I, I'm thinking of the marketplace in Arare, you know, our oldest marketplaces, but the, what is being cooked there, drifting into these rep theaters that we have, which are exclusive places and all that. And in due time, you know, <laughs> these things start to really famous. So I, I really appreciate what you did with that epilogue in, in that regard. David, <laughs> do you want to t- sort of say a bit more about what was, uh, what was going through your mind <laughs> when you wrote this beautiful epilogue? Oh, thank you. I Oh, gosh. I, so one fact, and this has a little bit to do with states. I mean, I actually, I think states could do a pretty good job at some of these things. The problem is they inherited conceptions of language that are no longer you know, no longer accurate. And so you get, you know, interior ministers who are just grabbing off the shelves from whatever they can find from structuralism. And they, you know, they start implementing these ideas of language that give the state a really brittle set of behaviors around languages. They could do it better. I'm not an anti-state person. I would love for states to do a better job at this. They just don't know where to start in some ways. I'm a social democrat. I would love to to see some of these uh, governments. And this is one of the reasons why I got so excited about the European Court of Justice is the way they do jurisprudence in a really kind of word hoard type of way. They get really into it. So I'm looking at models of jurisprudence and statecraft that really can do better. But one thing that I wanted to mention is that this is this week is the first week of my entire scholarly career where I'm not a member of any disciplinary organization, German Studies Association, American Association of Teachers of German, Modern Language Association, uh, American Association for Applied Linguistics. I'm no longer a member of any of them. And it's and, and it has to do with this hospicing idea, because I feel like our our large organizations have been in this defensive crouch that has really made a lot of us quite brittle. We, we end up kind of crouching back into a lot of monolingual stances on things and saying, um, you, you know, uh, th- this notion that we're misunderstood and the public doesn't appreciate us. And my stance on this is that, yes, mo- fortified monolingualism is very, very powerful. It, it can outspend us. It can out message us. And so we can't fight a late monolingualism on its own terms, we have to invent those terms afresh. 
and not to invest in some of the strategic defensiveness and I think cruel optimism that some of our disciplinary organizations have engaged in. And so when I went about doing this epilogue, it was with appreciation and admiration for the hundreds and hundreds of people who worked on the common European framework of reference for languages over, I don't know, what's it been 30 years now, but also a sense that Wow, it has adopted a set of ordo-liberal, neoliberal ideas about languages that I just don't think are enough. For example, Charles mentioned this 40 words of French trees that he had to memorize. That does not make any room for actually sitting around trees and looking at trees and touching them and figuring out what emotional relationship to the land, to the soil, to the trees, to the aesthetics and the smell. Those are the things that are going to keep people wanting to continue to learn languages um, in the 21st century. And it's the smells that you're talking about, Tuona, that waft from one kitchen to, to the next and don't obey boundaries and borders. That's the stuff that we have to encourage learners of languages to develop an emotional and spiritual and effective uh, relationship with and a moral relationship with, you know, being accountable to all of those things. And so I think I started to get a little frustrated with the common European framework around 2010, 2011, along those lines. And I put up a bunch of poster board in my department in Arizona and just invited students to fill in a letter A to Z about a type of competence or a type of relation to language that they cherished and treasured. As usual, I did not spell out the guidelines adequately. My, my instructions were a little bit elliptical. And so I ended up having to do this whole thing kind of myself in this book and say, you know, what would it look like to have a different kind of commons or a different kind of undercommons to use Fred Moten and Stefano Harney's term, an undercommons of language. And the whole epilogue is meant to just prompt people to do this themselves. As in, if you were to set out let's say you're a 14 or 15 year old potential language learner. What are the 26 um, things about the world that enchant you and that make you want to relate to others and make you want to be responsible um, and make you eager for the future? What are those 26 things? Let's come up with them and then use those instead of the kind of socio-commercial market-driven kind of conceits of the European framework in order to guide how you want to design your own language learning. And so, you know, I, I, the kitchen part, Tuona, sadly, I grew up with the kind, of, um, the kind of pedagogy that Charles was talking about, where I was given a vocabulary list and told, memorize this. But, you know, I ended up being a speaker of a number of languages, and in none of them could I talk adequately about the kitchen. Oh. And that was a terrible outcome. And it was something where I realized oh, wow, got to go back, got to relearn. And it reminds me of something Gamali Totsro talks about, which is it's never too late to go back, never too late to go back and, and pick up something that was lost. And so this epilogue is about trying to make good on some of those things that were really central to my own uh, language learning experience as a young person. I'm really mindful of your time and that, you know, we need to make sure that you enter a different time zone and a different country really quite soon. Just aware yet again that with Charles and Tawana in conversation with you that we're just really doing that work of scratching at the surface and waking up some real sleeping giants within our field and within our ways of thinking. 
So just as we, we come to the end, I mean, just maybe wrapping up a little around these questions of hospicing, I'm really struck and was struck in the inaugural lecture for the UNESCO Ryla Chair that we did here in Glasgow together that, you know, as Anne Carson points out and many others have done as well, that Xenia meant host and guest. And so I've also been looking up at this word hospicing to see what different meanings the Oxford English Dictionary as a state institution and you know, a horde of language has recorded for us about the etymology of hospicing and the hospice. And of course, it's both a house of conviviality, entertainment, particularly for young people who might be learning, as well as a place for caring for the sick and the dying. And I'm struck there in hospicing that there is that same doubling that we've separated out through those Cartesian dualisms um, in the ways that you've been talking about as, you know, producing a technocratic language that is well separated from the language of the home, uh, from your ability to make food. And, you know, it's, it's a joke, isn't it, uh, amongst those of us who've been brought up in these monolingual, multilingual traditions, that the last thing you'll ever understand, certainly for me, the last thing I understood when I was really fluent and able to really happily engage in German was a menu particularly a regional menu. And it's something that in my work with Gavin Jack, we noted in our work on the Isle of Skye with tourists, you know, the thing that they would come to my colleague Gavin, who is a native Scot to translate, would be the breakfast menu. And they wanted to know what these things were, you know, what is haggis and black pudding? And you know, what are oat cakes? And where, where's Stornoway? <laughs> and all of these words were really part of those hordes of language. So I'm really struck by the the separation of life and death and actually maybe there's work to be done in thinking of what does it mean to accompany a language a people work in that process of dying that is also about bringing up and remembering and recalling the life and then in Tawana's words there where he's speaking about the unswept house and the broom needing to sweep there's also a connection there you know the unswept house is a house that isn't often a house of hospitality, but also the unswept house can be a house of sickness or evidence of, of a dying going on. So, you know, as you've brought this broom in the invention of multilingualism to all of us really quite uncomfortably and gone, yeah, look, there's some cobwebs up there, guys, and you haven't, you know, swept the crumbs off the table. Um, and, and, you know, there's this kind of slight hygiene um, approach that we're starting to get into here as well. I just want to really thank you for those provocations, for bringing those up. And I can really see maybe an opportunity as your book makes its way in the world and you have a chance to talk about it and discuss it for us to come back to these questions with a little more reflection and, you know, maybe that a little more maturity as we get used to holding the questions ourselves and thinking about them. So I want to finish in two ways. Firstly, obviously, by thanking you, David, for taking the time, for thanking Charles and for thanking Tawana. I want to finish with the words, which are actually a song, but I'm not going to try and sing them, of the album of Robert McFarlane's poetry, the album written called Spell Songs. I'm really intrigued by spelling, but also spelling as a magical ritual activity. And these beautiful words from the song, The Lost Blessing, that Corrine Polwart sings, and she says, walk through the world with care, my love, and sing the things you see. 
let new names take root and thrive and grow. And even as you stumble through maca sands eroding, let the fern unfurl your grieving, let the heron still your breathing, let the selkie swim you deeper, oh my little silver seeker. Even as the hour grows bleaker, be the singer and the seeker, and in city and in forest, let the larks become your chorus, and when every hope is gone, let the raven call you home. Tawana. So the mystic, even as they approach the end of life, they still leave a bit of mystery for those remaining and they challenge the creative mystic challenges, those remaining to bury them in a rock face if they can. <laughs> so the song goes this way. It's reminding people that this journey is natural. So the song goes like this. Thank you everyone for listening and thank you to our guests on this, the 25th of our podcasts with the UNESCO Ryla Chair. Thank you for listening to the podcast of the UNESCO Chair in Refugee Integration Through Languages and Arts, a podcast series to make you think. More information about work can be found on the website of the University of Glasgow, www.gla.ac.uk. Thank you very much.